I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hello and welcome to You're On Mute, a new podcast series conceived by BBI, the UK's first black business institute, boosting prospects for underprivileged black entrepreneurs by promoting equivalent access to funding structures and essential business networks. I'm your host, Lord Michael Hastings, and over the next 16 weeks, me and my fellow hosts, June Sarpong and Bianca Miller-Cole, will be interviewing an incredible lineup of leaders, icons, and changemakers to ascertain how they balance the importance of commercial performance versus societal impact. The killing of George Floyd and the COVID-19 pandemic has highlighted how racial disparity has disproportionately affected the globe's black communities. And here we discuss the importance of balancing both commercial performance with societal impact. As we all know, with great power comes huge responsibility. And this series looks at how those in positions of influence can use their status as a force for good. Our time together is broken into three sections, each one punctuated by the guests' favorite piece of music, signaling different stages of their life. And today, I'm delighted to be joined by Paul Lindley OBE, founder of Organic Baby and Children's Food Brand, Ellis Kitchen, also chair of Robert F. Kennedy Human Rights UK, a trustee to Sesame Workshop, the creators of Sesame Street, a board member of social enterprise Toast Ale, which I've tasted and it's good, author of multiple books and recently chair of the newly established London Child Obesity Task Force by the Mayor of London, Sadiq Khan, and many, many more. Good afternoon. Hello, Paul. Hi, Michael. So let's go to the first track of music you picked, which is Bob Marley and the Whalers, which we all know very well. That war, gosh, tell us about that song. Well, Michael, I, uh, this is a a playlist, a track track of my youth because I grew up in Zambia and I just, Bob Marley in the early eighties was absolutely huge. He'd just um, done the Zimbabwe Independence Day uh, celebrations. Um, And across all communities in Lusaka where I was, he was huge and I love this track I love all of his music it was the as I say the playlist for my entire uh, childhood but but this song is so clever because it takes uh, a speech that Haley Selassie gave in the 1960s and puts it to music and it's all around uh, human rights it's all around uh, racial justice um, and uh, it's it's so energizing especially the live version well, those have clearly been huge foundations for you, all of those themes, but also the power of that music. Let's go to the early Paul Lindley. What's the, what's the story of the child and the young man and education and the family? Yeah, well, I sort of reflecting on this and thinking, to me, belonging is really important. Community, place, a sense of who you are and who you're with um, and where you came from. Uh, and um, so heritage um, to me is something that I've come to learn as defined why I think like I do and I guess why I do some of the work that I do. 
Um, and, and there's a couple of things in my sort of heritage um, story that has really played out to be light bulb moments when I discovered these things as to why I do what I do. Um, the first is, is a piece of paper I have, which listeners won't be able to see, but you will hear, uh, which I carry around in my notebook every day. And it's a marriage certificate from my great great grandparents, almost exactly 100 years before I was born. And it's all very interesting for the family who they were, what they did. But uh, both of them signed this marriage certificate with an X. So both of them were illiterate, which shocked me in sort of 100 years before I was born. Um, but it made me reflect on how important opportunity is to any of us. And the link I have four generations back to people who would have looked like me and would have had the same ideas maybe and same thinking as I've had the privilege to be able to execute and, and to live through, had, didn't have those opportunities. Yet each generation, my family has had more opportunities. I know their children moved to the city to Sheffield and found opportunity. I know their children, my grandparents, did, did uh, blue collar work. And my father uh, was a white collar worker, left school at 16 and, and went to work um, in the tax office um, and became a tax inspector. And then I and my brother have just had this opportunity to go to university and then to, to, for me to build a business. And, and each time it's another generation of opportunity. So as I reflect backwards for that, and that's my personal story, I can also project it sidewards to people away from me, if you like, um, and how, if they've not got the opportunity to read and write, how, how I can empathize and relate to that and what can I do now here and there to make their opportunities and their children's opportunities better because we're all connected. Everything is connected is one of the things I've learned from, from my journey. So, so that was one thing in my um, life story that's really, really impacted to me. Some, somebody that I, I can really relate to couldn't read or write. Um, and then the second thing is the wedding ring that I wear that you can see here now, because my, my grandparents were uh, immigrate, emigrated here from, um, from Ireland uh, with nothing in their pockets um, and just hopes. And, um, uh, and this wedding ring was one that my grandmother wore on the day of her wedding, which they eloped. Basically, they got married really early because their families didn't approve of the wedding and they got the train to Dublin and the boat to England on the day in 1931 that this wedding ring went on her finger and then she died a few months before I got married but she gave me the ring to put on my finger and just that connects me to the past and connects me to then other families who will have other stories like this um, which kind of all comes to my worldview of life of everything really what is important is people and understanding behaviors and motivations and what inspires them uh, and how they can get the best opportunities to deliver their ideas of how their family and their world should be um, is kind of what cements my work altogether. Absolutely compellingly interesting. I mean, it really is fascinating. Well, I do wish our listeners were able to see the ring and the certificate, but they can imagine them. And part of your growing up too was you weren't just, as you were born, brought up in Sheffield. You also went to Zambia. That's right. So my dad uh, went as a civil servant and, you know, my brother and I had this privilege of growing up with many cultures around us, with the privilege of, you know, uh, being white, I guess, in a, in a, a newly uh, independent country, 
uh, but having the opportunities to play sport and to 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 learn from different uh, amalgamation of people that were, that were coming there um, and from from Zambians themselves. And, you know, in the 70s and 80s, Zambia was right at the heart of world politics. It was a frontline state. President Kenneth Callender was a, a vociferous voice in, um, in in racial justice, I suppose, and, and, and sort of human rights uh, more broadly. And, um, you know, that was right in our mindset from every day, what was going on in the countries around us. Um, so it, you know, it, it struck me that one of my viewpoints now is that kind of we, we, we are best served and we make the most of ourselves if we don't just surround ourselves with people like us, but we surround ourselves by people that aren't like us or have a different life experience to us. So, you know, from th this podcast, I can share what I've done, but I'm not learning anything from sharing what I've done. I learn when I listen to the other podcasts in this series of what other people have been through. And so the opportunity to listen um, is, is um, one that many of us, you know, myself included, don't do enough of. Um, but it's the way we learn, and it's the way we learn other perspectives. And I'm privileged that, you know, that time in Zambia allowed me to learn and listen to all sorts of people from from uh, a kind of a melting pot of different places, uh, uh, local and international, um, that, you know, will have affected the way my life's played out, and I'm very grateful for that. That may be your commitment to human rights and your absolute commitment to equity for all people and your experiences in Zambia may well have affected that too. Has that, has that driven an emphasis in you? I think so, um, if I'm honest. I mean, there's, there's, you know, we're all complicated beings, aren't we? And there's lots of little things that make up us, us as a whole. Um, but that certainly has been a, a defining part. And, you know, I went on to university and I uh, studied politics and economics. And I focused on some of the, the African politics and politicians and their philosophies at the time. And it was so interesting in the 70s. You had Kenneth Cowander in Zambia, mm -hmm. whose, whose big thing was uh, humanism. And, you know, I guess I would define myself differently to him, but probably a humanist in, in terms of uh, you've got to put people at the center of all decision making and all actions. Uh, you had Julius Nereri, you had a whole number of interesting people experimenting with and trying to do for their countries what, you know, the, the European countries took 100 years to do within a decade. And some were successful, many failed, many learnings were made, and, you know, some of them were... Uh, adapted and learnt from and, and made improved and, and, and some weren't but it was just a fascinating time and um, it, it you know it was the first block in in what I've been able to build my life story around I suppose. Would you feel ever comfortable going back to Zambia? Uh, I went back about uh, 10 years ago uh, and took my, my kids. I am connected with some friends still there and some institutions and charities that are still there. I'm optimistic about Africa. You, you and I met first in Africa, uh, mm. perhaps 10 mm. years ago or so. Um, and it, it is really close to my heart what happens there. We can choose to be pessimistic or optimistic about anything in life, but I think Africa probably um, is one where the, those, those contrasts are most um, evident. You know, there, there will be another 3 billion people in Af the African continent in the next uh, 60 years, 70 years to the end of the, de uh, at the, end of the century. And, um, you know, that will bring a vibrancy and a youth and an opportunity for innovation and new ideas um, if you're optimistic. And the old challenges of lack of capital and lack of networks and lack of opportunity should disappear because of all of that. 
we've got to prevent the scenario of, you know, the, the capital and the opportunity doesn't come to those people. And, you know, there's strife and there's poverty and there's conflict, which could come. And, you know, it's, it's for people like uh, you, I and all our listeners to uh, involve ourselves in, in things like that. If we take a view of one world and what happens in a different part of the world is connected to us, uh, whether we care specifically about Africa or Asia or South America or anywhere, uh, that's one thing. If we don't particularly, but we care about the future of humanity, we're all connected and we need to build on the optimistic and hopeful things that we've got and do actions and take decisions to, to improve them and, um, and unite to uh, stop and minimise the, the negative things that is in all of humanity anyway. So you have a dizzying array of jobs that you follow after university. You go from you go to the Foreign Office and then you're in KPMG where we had, we had similar interests, but yours, yours involved you traveling between the UK and the US and then you go into media. Just how did you see that run of jobs? I think I remember at the time thinking, I don't really know what I want to do, but I want to have an impact and I want to make my, sure my, my life has made a difference to uh, beyond me. Perhaps when I was 20, I was thinking that. And I was sort of thinking in the 20s, I want to learn stuff and I want to effectively do perhaps jobs that I don't really see as the long term, but are learning and um, are, are stepping stones. So in my 30s, I might be able to do a job that I really enjoy. And in my 40s, perhaps I can create my own job. And I don't really think beyond that. But um, And it kind of has played out a little bit like that. Uh, I, I became an accountant, but I was never a suited and booted person that needs to wait for promotion on somebody else moving on and, uh, and being a big corporate person. Um, but it gave me tremendous experience, uh, both of the financial uh, side and also of people. I managed to create my own business in my mid-30s that for... Uh, the seven years I was involved from its launch to when we sold, um, it was a was an undoubted success, which I'm so proud of. Uh, but it was a success because I uh, I created a spark that others within the team um, managed to keep alive and, and grow. But um, you know, you never know how life flies out. But when I was 20, I thought I'd know the microbiology of an onion. Um, when I was 50, when I was 35 even, uh, I'd have told you you're mad, but uh, take your opportunities, learn from your mistakes and, uh, uh, and move on. And, uh, you know, I, I think actually, when I go back to that 20 uh, or 19, actually, when I started university, I started doing cellular pathology as a degree, which um, I, I made, I worked out very, very quickly within weeks, it was a massive mistake. And I stopped after a term and I started again doing economics and politics and I thoroughly enjoyed my degree. I met my wife through my best friends and things now from, from starting second time around. So I sometimes reflect if I hadn't failed fast and worked out that that was a mistake and I should learn from it and move on, but plugged away, you know, my life would have taken a very different turn. Um, and that whole sliding door things is, uh, the concept is, is, is really true, isn't it? We, we, we should take the opportunities we've got. We should recognize failure when it's happening and reflect why it's failed, what, what we've learned from that failure and use it to promote success later. Let's go to your second track of music, which is Streets of London by Sinead O'Connor. And that's got a message, hasn't it? Yes. And I, you know, I know my first songs got a message as well. And I, I, I think, I think music is this huge, um, uh, media and, and, and communication opportunity to get messages over. Um, now, Streets of London, 
to me is, you know, it's a tradition, it's a song that Sinead O'Connor covered, um, but it, to me it's, it's, that could be you or I, that those people that she sings around and what loneliness is and what poverty is and just, you know, and that, it, that one different sliding door that opened or closed for me or you, that could put us, we're making a cup of tea last for an hour in a cafe because we've got nowhere to go home to or no one to go home to, that she sings about. And Sinead O'Connor specifically because of my Irish background and it connects me to, uh, again, heritage and a sense of belonging to, um, to, to the Irish culture and heritage. Your career continues to develop and with children, especially with your daughter, Ella, you become an entrepreneur. And just take us through the thinking of that journey and what you created. Mm. Well, as I sort of alluded earlier, you know, I, I've never been a suited and booted person and I've been looking for the opportunity to find an idea that's mine and to see whether it works or not. And I guess I only got to the confidence of, of doing that or having that idea in my mid thirties. Um, and once I'd had it, which was a culmination of my personal experience of having my daughter and finding that the best way to get her to enjoy new foods was to make her laugh and smile with silly games and work out that food is fun. And then my professional experience of television being blamed for poor health for children and seeing that the uh, health trajectory of the successive generations of children was getting worse and, and wondering why that would be. Um, you know, those two things came together and I thought, well, someone should create a brand of food that's for children, that is, uh, they, 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 they own it, it connects with all of their senses, uh, yet is healthy food, and we can disrupt uh, the, the market and, and create something new with different packaging, different recipes, a different marketing approach and a different sense of why the business exists, perhaps to the big multinationals that we came to compete against. And I launched Ellis Kitchen in 2006. And within six years, it had become the UK's biggest uh, baby food business. It still is. And it's in 50 countries around the world. And I'm so, so proud that it, it's, it's been successful. But I really think it's been successful for um, two or three things, which I, I don't know whether it's of interest to your listeners to, mm. to talk those through, but, but really it, it sort of plays through some of how I think we should think about life because it is not successful because a business plan showed that you could make X amount of profit if you followed that business plan because that's a piece of paper or it's a spreadsheet. It needs people to execute that and it needs to be a sustainable way to make a decent money using doing decent things for decent people. Um, so I, I think, you know, the, the success aspects really are first and foremost that the business was built on a whole set of values um, first mm. I, I sat down with a piece of paper and said what are my values what are the values I want in this company and how when we have those difficult decisions that I know that are going to be coming how do we decide whether it's the right decision or not and if we can rest on values three or four values that define what the company is why we all work there why investors have invested in it and why consumers should trust to buy from it then we'll be in a good place. Um, so value building businesses on values is one thing. Being customer obsessed is another thing. Listening constantly and learning from the people that you are asking to buy from you and who are ultimately entrusting their most precious thing in their life, their child, with your food and their health and their well-being, and sort of constantly listening to them for things that we can improve, but for new ideas. And that, that, that has helped make that company so successful. The third thing comes back to people and it's team and it's building an awesome team that feels as though they're behind uh, or part of one mission, that they're rewarded and recognized in, in a way for their contribution. 
um, that they can make mistakes and be autonomous, that they can be connected with other people, that they can learn as part of their own human being development as a person uh, through their time and leave a handprint with the organization. And, and, you know, that doesn't happen by accident. That happens by culture and policies and active, um, active engagement all the time. But it, I really do think that any company is nothing more than the sum of the people that work there and the ideas and the, the energy that they can bring to uh, make a sustainable business. And, and, and I think, Michael, the, the final thing is really a constant thought um, and, and actions around how you can constantly deepen authenticity and trust in what you're trying to do. Mm. Um, trust is the, is the glue that binds us together as people. Um, and those businesses or those entrepreneurs that think, well, you know, we'll do a deal where I'll win and, and that person will lose and we'll underpin it with a contract and we'll get the lawyers in as soon as the contract's broken is not going to be the way that that company will be successful. That those, uh, you need to build relationships, build trust, not be transactional, understand where the other person's coming from, put them in, you, you put yourself in their shoes um, mm -hmm. and collaboratively together build um, benefits and um, added value to both, both of you. And you remember, I think, a famous moment when there was a call from Sainsbury's and they said, we love this, and 300 packs are required, 300 stores, in fact, are required this. Yes, well, as I say, right, you know, we built on values and built on a, a, a mission, a mission to improve children's uh, lives through developing healthy relationships with food. That's what I started with. That's what still is the mission with Alice Kitchen. And to be able to improve children's lives, I didn't think that we could start with you know, a number of corner shops or a number of markets or, you know, a number of small wholesalers. Um, I wanted to go with the, the big people straight away. And um, I, I pitched into a number of the supermarkets. I must have made 500 phone calls across the, across the year that it took me to find somebody. And when Sainsbury's phoned back and left a message and saying, we're going to take a flyer, that was their words. I remember immediately thinking, oh, I've made it, that's great. And then thinking straight away within 10 seconds, oh my God, now I've got to make it and I've got to do it. And now it's just, it's just the beginning. And, um, you know, I, I thought big and um, I, one of my, one of the most um, influential conversations I think that I've had was a few months later after launching, I think it was the second award that, uh, that we'd won at Ella's Kitchen, was for small business of the year in the food industry, I think it was Sir Ken Morrison um, gave mm. me the award and I sort of asked him, is there a piece of advice that you, you might give to me as I'm starting my journey? Uh, and he said, look, he said in his Yorkshire actions, which I won't repeat, but he was said, look at your feet, uh, mm -hmm. see them, he said, uh, keep them on the ground, uh, Look at your head keep that in the clouds and so keep grounded and humble but just imagine and explore and and, and you, if you can keep the two together then you'll do well and i think that is a sound piece of advice that i've taken uh, and run with well you've done incredibly well paul and, and great benefit to everyone who used your food and your services and the company is, is phenomenal you had the opportunity because of your business uh, earlier on that you could remortgage to purchase or to put at least you could put put investment towards your business and you know that that for black entrepreneurs it's a really tough thing to be able to get access to money only 38 black entrepreneurs secured funding from venture capital funds in a decade averaging 36,000 each partly because black people don't tend to own their own homes the afro-caribbean community 124,000 properties the dominant white community 12.8 million properties so someone who's 
been there and and for all the good reasons had the advantage what would you say to black entrepreneurs who are looking into a world where it's tough to get money and they don't own the assets mm. so my advice would be that the biggest asset you've got is your ability to go out and talk to to people and listen to people and so the the biggest difference that any entrepreneur but especially one that's coming from the disadvantage of not being connected with people who will invest in them or have the asset themselves is to go and you know the professional word would be network but just go and talk to people and listen to people and talk to as many different people as you can because um, the more you talk to people the more they'll talk to other people and the more you'll get connected the way successful businesses work is through that people connection of getting that ultimate trust and that ultimate belief in what you're doing and if that is not in your immediate circle then you're going to have to work harder to find that but that would be where i would suggest that people um Put, put their energy but we you know we've got a systemic problem this this is for that entrepreneur now and in the next few weeks or the next few months they need to raise the money and that's one question i mean the good news within that is that there are different ways of being able to raise finance that weren't available 10 years ago or 20 years ago but then there's the systemic issue of venture capitalists or angels will invest in who they see people like them or people to connected with people like them and if you're not like them then it's so much harder. And, you know, the statistics that you gave me play that through. So the more we can get venture capitalists and angels uh, that are um, from black communities and people of assets and of wealth and of the ability to help um, young entrepreneurs grow, then we need to do that. You know, I would say to the people from the black community that are starting off on an entrepreneurial journey, it, it, it's hard for everybody, but it is going to be especially hard if you need to raise capital. But that will make you a better entrepreneur. That will give you the deeper opportunity to believe in yourself, uh, which is absolutely critical. And the more no's you get, and every entrepreneur will get lots of no's, the, the, the more you get, the more you can believe in yourself and the more you can make that difference and cut through because you'll be more resilient um, than others. But um, that's not taking away the issue that structurally in society we've got all these inequalities that we need as a society to uh, address and to unleash all the talent in this country uh, to meet its full potential. Thank you for that. So your third piece of music, Bridge Over Troubled Water by artists regretful led by Stormzy. Yeah, it's a 60s song which um, Simon and Garfunkel um, that was actually written uh, about Martin Luther King and Bobby Kennedy and uh, the bridges that they were over troubled waters in the in 1968 especially um, and you know how both of them lost their lives that year and a lot of hope was lost but um, it is it is an uplifting song and um, it was taken uh, by Stormzy and he got a whole load of artists together and it is a modern uplifting version of of that uh, of the monies were raised for the victims of the Grenfell fire. You have a particular strength of appeal from the insights and the work of Robert F. Kennedy. Just tell us about how that has mattered to you and how he mattered to you. Oh, hugely, right through my life from early childhood. And I don't know why, but, you know, he, rather than his brother, the president, um, really, really appealed to me in the fact that his words and his view of politics was all centered around words like compassion and dignity uh, and fairness and um, words that are very human and politicians rarely do that he built his worldview around humanity and around taking actions and decisions that helped 
um, come to be human rights, but, but just help people um, uh, um, as the measure of success. And, um, you know, he appealed to a constituency of voters that, you know, was not like him. He came from a, a, a very rich uh, New England family. Um, yet his constituency was the dispossessed and, you know, the minority communities. He, he showed me that if you reach out and listen, we can all inspire and achieve things together. And, you know, he was a huge loss to the world uh, when his campaign ended in 1968. Um, but what we do in a small way, uh, working with his family still, is try and keep that legacy alive. And I think, you know, the, the, the challenges of 1968, over 50 years ago now, when the world was divided and there was unjust wars and there was poverty and discrimination within the streets of our countries, you know, that has kind of uh, moved forward massively in some respects, but in other respects has hardly moved forward at all, as we've seen with what happened with George Floyd. And as what we've seen what happened with our government and their, uh, their review of, of racism in this country and the... Uh, the outcomes that they saw fit to to bring from that report and the, the backlash against that and the COVID context. And just this week, uh, Michael, as you and I will have read this morning or watched on the news, you know, what's happened at Yorkshire uh, Cricket Club, you know, it means that that has not moved on since the 1960s. And kind of, you know, when when we look at why um, uh, we you must have a look, look at ourselves, because we are part of the society and the community that that has allowed things like this to continue and what do I and you and all of our listeners do in our day-to-day -day lives that in a small way can change things? Uh, what do we put pressure on our governments to change the big stuff? And how do we work with our you know, investors and you know, money to force change? You know, I, don't, I, I think Yorkshire, is, this has all come out not because they you know, realized that, that, that there was an abhorrent culture there, not because the chief executive thought they should resign because they'd done something wrong. They did it because their sponsors started pulling money out and um, money talks in that respect. So those of us that are active in this area, the more we can work with organizations, for example, like Share Action and, and others to um, ensure that um, investors, people who have assets, uh, you know, invest them in uh, diverse um, uh, fund managers, um, that they invest in diverse owned businesses, um, that, you know, everybody in that chain has a report, uh, has knowledge of and can act upon, you know, the diversity and the inclusion and the equity that's in their organizations. And we can all judge them and make our decisions for public money and private money as to where we want to put it um, on the basis of how they are reflecting the aspirations of the society that we, we hope to have. So, you know, I, I choose to be optimistic. I'm a realist in terms of we have got deep systemic and individual problems in this country and around the world. But, you know, if we can put pressure on our governments to make the right big decisions, we as a society can, you know, um, act and be activists and, and really create a movement and a culture in our society, in the streets, in our businesses, in our schools and homes that, you know, those of us that aren't, aren't black, are upstanders, um, but all of us are anti-racist. We can make change, and you know we oughtn't to forget some of the, the the real successes that we've had, both with legislation, with culture, and and, and activism, and in the financial community that we've had over the last ten or twenty years. That that we do move forward. We've got to go forward with acceleration. Um, but unless we have hope that we can do that, um, we, um, we we will begin to slide. But there's enough 
knowledge around this and there's enough sense of injustice around it for uh, more and more people to uh, try and create the society that we aspire to and we all want to live in together to make the best out of every person that's in this country so that we can all contribute together to a better life for our children is, um, is there for us to take. Just and briefly, given your great knowledge of Robert Kennedy's thinking and his work and his writing, as you look at our political class today, the United States, the United Kingdom, what do you think the salient points of his character and his caliber were that we need to learn today? Uh, probably uh, a couple of things. Uh, one around having a set of values that you build your whole proposition upon, uh, rather than opportunism and populism and the fact that you want to be prime minister and you think you can get elected by appealing to this section of the voters and it doesn't matter what the other section of the voters think. Um, so, you know, uh, that's a set of values that you build your, your vision of how the world should be and you can take steps to act to, 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 to deliver that um, is one thing. And he and, you know, what, what, what I try and live by is start with people. Start not with, because, you know, this demographic says that wants this and this, the polls show that this percentage of people want that. Think about the individual families and the individual people and the effect of your decision on them. You know, Grenfell happened not because of a malicious idea that we would uh, put people in danger, but because we prioritized budgets over people. We prioritized um, a bureaucracy and a procedure over the, 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 the lived experience of people that were living in those bu that building and, and similar buildings. And, you know, we've got to change that as a mindset. Bobby Kennedy thought about those values and, and tried to deliver on values. Um, and I think that the second thing is that he, he reached out to people that were not like him and he got to understand and listen and talk to them. And we, you know, we have accelerated into a place where whoever we are, we surround ourselves by people who are like us. And the more opportunity we've got to find people who are not like us, and I'm not just talking about, say, color or class or gender, but political view, you know, all aspects of humanity, just listen and understand. And we've lost that common sort of common life, commonality of where we can mix. And, you know, that's for us as people to, to rekindle, you know, and, and, and to demand of our government to, to, to fund or, or, or whatever. But, you know, a park shouldn't matter who you are or where you are to enjoy a park, a public park, and, and, and the sport and the beauty and everything that is around that should be available to us all. Um, and, um, you know, that's uh, there the, are the a multitude of things like that that we can do in small spaces where we can come together um, and understand each other. Uh, I, I often, you know, the, the, the things that I always, whoever I meet, I always find a connection on either kids or uh, humor um, or uh, uh, um, hobbies. Um, uh, and food, I guess, for the four things, four things that we will find commonality on. And once you find a commonality, you can build trust and you can build a base. But if we never speak to people who have a different political view to us, we'll never understand where they're coming from. Mm. Um, well, one of your commonalities is food and you love toast. And that has a very yeah. different meaning, doesn't it? It does. And it, it for me, it epitomizes what you're talking about is Toast Ale, this business that I've invested on and I've chaired and I just think is 
a, a wonderful business. Um, it, what it does, it, it takes uh, surplus fresh bread uh, that otherwise would be thrown away. And we take that and we use that instead of some of the barley to make delicious craft beer. Um, so it's a circular economy business, um, but um, it's looking really to send a message that we can have a world with less waste and a beer with great taste. Um, and it re refreshingly looks at what one person may see as waste and useless that another person may see as something absolutely vital and all of us need to be in a world we've seen with everything that's happened in the news with, uh, with COP this last couple of weeks, uh, where each of us needs to take a responsibility to, um, to do a small step, but when small businesses can thrive because they're great beer, but happen to uh, take somebody else's waste um, and economically that all can be done cheaper uh, uh, than um, another pint of beer that uses wholly barley, then um, I think we're on to a good thing. So, toast ale. The best. The best. <laughs> I, I must say, though, um, food shouldn't be wasted and neither should you, so do drink responsibly. Amen. We all agree with that. <laughs> I mean, the, the, as we're coming towards the end of this conversation now, there are so many issues that circle around racism and and but one of the macro issues, of course, is the non-representation of diverse people in boardrooms, particularly people from African and Caribbean backgrounds. And, and when you look at the, you've been, you've been heavily into the forefront of business in every sector of it. Um, how diverse do you think boards should be and how can we improve that diversity? Right. Well, boards should reflect the society for which the communities that the company serves, I, I think. And, you know, on a, on a practical level, not doing that misses out on ideas and perspectives and experiences that that community has that you may be missing. Um, but from a sort of a moral point of view, um, it um, is uh, self-evident that, you know, we should reflect the people that we come from. Um, and so how, how do you get to that? Well, you need to amplify the voices of, of the black and Asian and ethnic minority community, the people, communities in, in this country, in, in their businesses. You need to give them an opportunity to be heard, uh, whether that's getting their foot in the door in the first place, I think, in terms of the, um, the way you seek to recruit, the, the, the sort of um, areas, how, how you process that, that recruitment, you know, are you doing it on, I don't know if you're a small business, LinkedIn, which means it's people like you because they're connected to you on LinkedIn that you're gonna find. Or do you go out to look into uh, recruitment agents or recruitment places that, that where you will find somebody that's not like you that will bring a different perspective. But how internally, once those people are, are, are in place, how can you help the whole company have a culture where those voices are heard, any, um, inadvertent discrimination or practices you know are, are whistleblown or are, 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 are you create a culture where they're easily talked about um, reverse mentorship is really interesting where board members um, can learn from uh, more junior people who may be of a different ethnicity uh, different certainly different stage of life and you know how we can all learn from each other but unless you give those spaces where voices can be heard and people can be feel that they're listened to one as a human being and two the person that's doing the listening can act upon what they've heard um then um we uh we're not going to move forward very quickly we could get into um you know legislation or, or, or uh, around um companies should reflect the society from which they 
um, get the break of um, uh, limited liability and um, social contract between business and uh, and the rest of society and uh, you know I'm not averse to looking at that I think there's some things that, that you know I think the Labour Party is very interesting sort of 20 years ago when when Tony Blair first came in they had all female um, uh, prospective parliamentary candidates in some uh, constituencies um, and um, although you know that was um, controversial and difficult and legally difficult at the time the fact that the Labour Party now has more than 50% of its MPs are, are women means that it's effective and you know we're not going to change things tomorrow but we can start a journey that's that change things tomorrow so each of us feel that we're on a you know journey whether we're black white or anything in between but we we um you know we we all need to feel as though we're going in the same direction so the things that i was saying to answer your question though michael is is really give as many opportunities for voices to be heard and for us to uh see other perspectives within a business if we can ensure that when we employing somebody we final candidates come from a diverse background and the people making the decisions on the interview uh, of who the candidate should be um, come from a diverse background. I think that's a great place to start. So our final uh, question to you is that we ask all of our podcast guests if um, in this diversity and inclusion space, they might make a pledge, a personal pledge. What, what would yours be? Well, I think my pledge would be to in some way slow down and reflect and listen um, you know, we, we all come from prejudice in, in, in because of our individual life experiences. And the more we can take ourselves out of our initial instinct or our initial view or what we've been taught to think and put ourselves in other people's shoes and listen, truly listen, because you'll learn something that's, that's, that, that can be beneficial to you personally, but society more generally. Um, so finding those opportunities, a pledge to find those opportunities to meet people who um, may have had a different life experience to me, learn something and act and do something from that. Um, and I think, you know, the, the other thing that I'd like to pass on to my children, especially was, you know, have that confidence that when you see something that's wrong, that feels wrong, that you speak up and you speak truth to power about that. And if the power is your friends, that's even harder than if they're not your friends. But you must start when something just feels wrong, expressing that it feels wrong to you, and, you know, we can go back to Yorkshire Cricket Club this this week and these last few years, you know, if those players had said that just feels wrong and that's not right and I don't want to be part of it, culture would have changed very quickly. So, and that requires, you know, a, a moral compass that, you know, if we go back to, we've talked about Bobby Kennedy a little bit, that is one thing I've learned from him, be, be confident in your own moral compass uh, and use it. Well, sadly, Paul, that's all we've got time for. This has been a riveting conversation. Thank you so much, Paul, for joining me today, opening up about your fascinating life and your remarkable relationships and future aspirations. And I know for so many of us, this episode will stay around in our memories a long time. So please join us next time on the BBI's You're On Mute, where we hear from another icon, business leader, or a famous personality. Until then, please subscribe, review, and leave your feedback wherever you get your podcast from. If you're a leader and would like to share your journey and opinion on social justice, and a fairer society, please contact us, contact us at info at blackbusinessinstitute.com. Until the next time, goodbye.
When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's stamps.com. Code program.